Thank you, Father, for the encouragement of this passage and the other one we have already read this morning. We thank you for the encouragement of this book. What an amazing book that has unfolded to us such rich grace and such a treasured God who has made himself available to us. Not just so that we can be saved by him, but so that we can be saved to him. Might that, might that singular truth rivet us this morning. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning with um, maybe just a couple of reflections on my trip. I was, for those of you who weren't aware, uh, my name is Terry. I've been a pastor here for a few years and I've been gone for a few weeks um, traveling with Dan Kirk from Calvary Bible Church and Eric Mock from the Slavic Gospel Association. I'm going first to Ukraine and then to Israel to teach biblical counseling in both of those places. This is, um, I think, the fourth trip that Dan and I have taken together. And a third one with Eric, if I remember correctly. And um, and the Lord just keeps opening doors of opportunity to teach. And I'm just so very thankful for that. And just wanted to give you a brief overview of what we did and, and then um, some reflections on God's grace in the middle of that. Um, as I think about this trip, um, I, th- I am grateful for the sufficiency and the power of the Word of God. Uh, there we are teaching in Israel... Uh, where there had never previously been, at least at that school, um, an exposure to biblical counseling. And, and when we first started, there was a what in the world are they talking about glazed look on their eyes because Dan started with what is biblical counseling and then I started with the theology of biblical counseling. And if, if you uh, have heard that lecture, it's one I've done here many times, um, I, do, I do a survey of all of systematic theology in an hour and connect it to biblical counseling. And halfway through, it was, it was uh, very evident that this wasn't a, a just one fire hose. This was like a barrage of fire hoses, and they didn't have categories for the kinds of things we were talking about. And, and, uh, and there was some initially some pushback to some things we were saying, and then we just kept opening the book and explaining the book and the power of the book took place. And by the end of the week, there's just this embrace and this delight in the things we were teaching. And they began seeing the efficacy of the scriptures to change people's lives. And so that as we were leaving, they said, uh, are you coming back in June for our next class? (laughs) And I said, I'm delighted you've got another class, but um, no, (laughs) that's a little too quick, but, but we are open to coming back again. There were there were 36 seats in the classroom, and there were 36 people that signed up, and there were pretty much 36 people there every day. That's not the entire class, but that is uh, the majority of them. We would teach every day from 8.30 in the morning till 4 in the afternoon and then take questions afterwards, and it was just really, really gratifying. We were teaching at Israel College of the Bible, and they have two tracks there. One is for Hebrew-speaking students and one is for Russian-speaking students. Just by way of reminder, 25% of the population in Israel is Russian-speaking, which is why Slavic Gospel Association has a presence there. And the, um, the Russian-speaking component of this school is a significant part of their school, and that's where we were teaching. We were um, the first 
American um, people to come over and teach in the Russian-speaking portion of that school, and so we were really gratified by that. But even beyond that, um, the school has historically been integrationist in its approach to counseling. And, uh, and we were the first ones to come and lay a foundation and say the scriptures are sufficient. And, and it was just a delight to see how um, they just gravitated to that and embraced that and welcomed that. So really, really thankful for that opportunity to be in Israel. Um, most of the pictures I have of the class, by the way, are from the back. They allowed us to take this picture of the entire student body, but they don't want anything published online or anywhere else with pictures of the faces because there is some opposition um, from the Israeli government uh, against them. So they're just very careful about what gets published on their website. Ukraine was a a slightly different story. Um, Ukraine, we taught uh, there for a similar amount of time, but we had, um, I think, 86 students sign up for the class. And uh, most days we had about 75 there. And this was not their introduction. They'd already been exposed to biblical counseling. Ernie Baker taught there, um, I think, in October of last year and, uh, and exposed them to biblical counseling. They already bought in and they understood the validity and the need of it. And, uh, and they were enthusiastic. This is, a, this is a well-trained group of people. This seminary has been there many years. Uh, it's in its second generation of leadership, and they're doing well. They have, I think, about 600 students. Uh, they come in week by week for different modules. And so um, there were about 100 students on campus uh, this week that we were there, and most of those students were in the class that Dan and I were teaching. Again, we would um, teach for from 9, nine in the morning till 5 in the afternoon, take questions afterwards, hang around, and interact with people, and that was um, a, particular, a particular delight. There is the class in its entirety, um, lots of folks. In fact, what's, what was really kind of fun is most of the men on that first row were professors at the school, and they engaged in the class as well. So we're not only training the students, but we we're also training the professors, and they were very welcoming, um, and uh, we were grateful for that. Um, I'm grateful for the fellowship of believers. So we showed up and we stayed at the SGA Ministry Center while we were there and these folks were there to welcome us and every morning at breakfast, I think that's breakfast that we're eating there. Um, no, that's lunch actually. Um, but uh, we, every morning for breakfast they would feed us and then we'd come back in the evening and the first evening we were there, um, they started peppering us with questions and it was a three-hour time of fellowship. And uh, the woman on the left um, spoke good English. The woman on the far right um, spoke a moderate English, and everybody else speaks Ukrainian and Russian. And my Ukrainian and Russian isn't too good. And uh, and uh, and yet, as we just talked, we just embraced and were welcomed, and it was just a delight to just just take the scriptures and unfold them. And there's this, there's this bond. You, you fly 8,000 miles or whatever it is, and you get there, and it's a stranger, and you, you mention Christ, and you talk about the Bible, and now there's this bond, isn't there? And it was just, it was just really, really sweet, and um, really grateful for that. Uh, I'm humbled by God's grace. Um, the, the schedule was full. 
and we, we taught a lot, and uh, we talked a lot. And, and Dan and I both like to talk, um, but I think we reached, reached kind of our limit. <laughs> and uh, the days were full, the days were long, and yet God was so gracious to sustain us physically. And uh, when we needed strength, He provided exactly what we needed. And then we'd get back to the hotel room and the strength would go away. And then you'd fall in bed and you'd sleep and get up and do it again. And um, just so thankful. This is, this is God's kindness. This is God's kindness. There was another kind of grace for me personally. I shared this with the folks in Ukraine when we got there. As I introduced myself, in the 1920s, uh, my grandparents were German Mennonites living in the Ukraine. And they fled for their lives from the Bolsheviks. And now two generations later, God graced me to be able to go back and, as it were, have a small part in in training my kinfolk. And that was... Uh, that was particularly a sweet blessing in my life. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the grace of this church body uh, that has always thought big about ministry and always thought about how can we expand the borders of what we're doing. We want, we want to impact Granbury, but we want, to, we want to impact other places and other peoples as well. And, and I thank you for um, how you graced me with prayers and graced me with encouragement and and sent me on with joy uh, to do that. And that's been a great blessing in my life. I'm, I'm thankful for it. Um, I'm thankful for an amazing wife. Those of, you, us who, those of you who know us well know I married up, like way up. And um, I've had a number of these trips over the years. And Ray Jean's response always is, you have to go. You have to go. Some wives might say, well, I'm willing to let you go. If you have to, go ahead. Um, but Regine says, no, you, you need to go. You must go. And there were a couple of times I was kind of waffling. And she said, no, play the man. <laughs> you need to go. You need to go. And that is, that is a, it's a rich treasure in my life. I'm, I'm humbled by the Lord and awed by Him. When, when we finish teaching, now I, I must disclose, not, not everything we do was difficult and hard. We were staying across the street from the Mediterranean Sea on the ninth floor balcony and, and the view was not bad. <laughs> and so when, when we finished teaching, Dan said, uh, we're going for a walk. So, okay, let's go for a walk. So we took a walk along the Mediterranean Sea So um, and at sunset, and it was just as gorgeous as you might imagine. Um, and along the way, he asked me the question, so um, what have you learned this week from what you have been teaching that has ministered to your own heart? And I, I wasn't sure how to answer in that moment, um, but I can tell you now, um, that as I reflect on that week, I am compelled by God. His amazing grace, His amazing kindness to us in so many ways. We were told in Israel on, on two occasions by two different people, the church in Israel is young. It's a first generation church. And they are, 
They're trying to sort out direction. They're trying to sort out what do we do. They're trying to sort out theological absolutes. They're trying to figure out, in a sense, how to do ministry. Um, but the people that are there are well-grounded. And there are, some, there are some really gifted teachers there and some gifted people who are helping to move that church in the right direction. And, and friends, the gates of hell are not prevailing against that church. The church in Ukraine is, is different. It's, it's a church that is much more established. It's, it's much stronger, and in part it's much stronger because of persecution that it has faced. Um, some of the people, there's a group of four to six people that came to us one afternoon and said, I just want you to know we are from Crimea, and, um, and it was a struggle to get here. And they were facing opposition. And they were facing persecution in their homeland. And they were there to be taught the Word of God. They're, they're a strong church. They're a vibrant church. They're a well-taught church. And, and that's the work of God's grace. Um, I love the, the unity of the church. That's God's grace. These people, when we show up, they extended to us the right hand of fellowship. We didn't know them. And when we left, we get a hug of embrace and tears in their eyes and asking, when will you come back? That, that's, what that's what Christ does in binding us together, isn't it? Um, that's, that's what we experience when we gather for worship as well. This is all about God's grace. This is all about God's power. This is all about God's sufficiency. This is all about God's glory. It's always about Him. And in case you were wondering, that's my transition to the book of Romans. Because the book of Romans is about God. It is is a book uniquely about Him. Uh, The book book of Romans is about the gospel. It's about salvation. It's about theology. It's case could be made. It's perhaps the greatest theological treatise ever written. But it is a book uniquely about the person of God. 153 times in this book, God is mentioned by name. And you might say, well, yeah, Terry, it's the Bible. (laughs) God's the center. But he is at the center of this book in the way, in a way overtly that he's not mentioned as regularly as being at the center as in this book. In fact, the name of God is mentioned more times in Romans than any other New Testament book by occurrence um, than, I think, First Peter and First John. But they're much smaller books, much shorter books. This book, this book is just saturated with the godness of God. And as I thought about this morning, coming back and thinking about um, just a refresher on where we have been, what I want you to see is not just that God's nature is revealed. It is, but it's more than that. It's not just that God's character is revealed. It is, but it's more than that. It's not just that God's works are revealed. They are, but it's more than that. God himself is putting himself on display so that we would come to him and embrace him. So... I've 
kind of summarize the message this morning this way. God is not only gracious to all mankind, but He has revealed Himself to mankind so we might see Him and worship Him and delight in Him and be drawn to Him preeminently. And we're going to see that that as a revelation. We're going to see that revelation in five different ways. Five five revelations of God in Romans 1 through 10. And the first is given to us in the first 17 verses. And that is that the God of grace is seen. The God of grace is seen. Now, we often say something like, um, I see the grace of God in my life. I see the grace of God in someone else's life. I, I see God's grace. But I want to turn that statement just slightly so that we say, I see the God of grace. He is a gracious God. He is a kind God. He is a benevolent God, an over, overwhelmingly kind God. But he is, what He wants us to see is not just what He does. He wants us to see Him and embrace Him. He is an immense God, isn't He? He's a transcendent God. He is an eternal God. He is an infinite God. If you were to draw... Try and draw a line and measure the length of the line between us and the infinite nature of God. There is no line that can be measured between us and the difference between us. It is an infinitely large chasm between God and us. Such that, as Paul notes in chapter 11, there is no one that can be God's advisor. There is no one that can be God's corrector. And in some sense, because of the immensity of God, He is unknowable. And at the same time, He has made Himself known to us. He has revealed Himself to us. He has not only revealed the kinds of things He does, He has not only revealed His nature and His character, but He has actually revealed Himself to us. And we see this in verse, uh, in these opening verses in the book. Verse 3. Talking about God, he says, speaking of God, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So God, God reveals himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, let me take the son of God and put physical clothes on him, as it were. Let us, let me put flesh on him so that mankind can see me and see what I am like. So John says in John chapter 1, um, the, the only begotten of the God, He has explained or exegeted Him. He has exposed God for who He is. God has revealed His grace in Himself in His Son, Jesus Christ. He has revealed Himself and His grace in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You want to know who God is? Then Verse 4, he has declared, Jesus has declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the Spirit of God brings Christ to life to demonstrate this is God. Let me display for you who God is. He has revealed his grace and himself to us in giving peace to men through Jesus Christ. Notice verse 7. To all, Paul is writing, to all who are beloved of God in Rome. They are beloved of God, by God. God has 
God has poured out His love on particular people. It's not just that God loves in general, but God loves specifically. And then notice the end of the verse, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not only that He is God, but He has come to us as the Father. He has come to us to embrace us and to draw us into fellowship with Him, to make us His sons so that we are connected to Him in that familial way. Verse 17, God is revealed in His righteousness For in the righteousness of God it is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man will live by faith. So so by faith alone and only by faith will we see the revelation of God and we see God in His righteousness and when He puts His righteousness on display. Now that righteousness doesn't always sound like good news to us. His, his righteousness is, is a righteousness that He demands from us and, and we can't meet. And, and we're going to see in verse 18 that He pours out His wrath on unrighteousness. Even Martin Luther came to be so disconcerted by this understanding of the righteousness of God that he said this, I hated that word, righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically of the formal or act of justice, as they called it, by which God is righteous and punishes sinners and the unrighteous. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt I was a sinner before God with a most disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, indeed, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners." Secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. So he hated God. He hated God's righteousness. He hated, hated the standard that God had set for him. And then he studied Romans chapter 3 and he saw that there's another side to the righteousness of God. He writes this, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of all Scripture showed itself to me. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. The passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. And what do we find in heaven? but God Himself. It is the righteousness of God that He imputes to us by faith so that we come to Him. And what I want you to see in this verse and in this section is that when the righteousness of God is revealed, it is God who is revealed. He does not merely want us to be drawn to righteousness, though obviously we should desire that righteousness, but He wants us to be drawn to Him to have satisfaction with Him, to have longing with Him. There are a lot of things in our lives that compete for our attention, aren't there? There are a lot of things that are that say, I am desirable, pursue me and desire me and long for me. 
When, when I was in Israel, one of the things that they had out in their lobby area right outside the classroom was the biggest, fanciest, coolest, shiniest coffee machine I've ever seen. I mean, you just walk up to it and you say, today I want Americano with steamed milk. And later in the day, well, I want an Americano with cold milk. And now I want a cappuccino. And now I want a this. And it just, it just puts all that stuff together. And there you go. Caffeine in a bottle. It was great. And those things compete for our attention, don't they? We long for them. And we say, that'll give me satisfaction. That'll, that'll meet the longings of my heart. Maybe it's not a coffee machine. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a cherry red refurbished 1963 Corvette. Maybe it's, maybe it's a weekend at home with no honeydew lists, no honeydew tasks. And maybe, maybe it, maybe it's, um, maybe it's a tax season where there's no burden and there's no weight. There's all kinds of things we want. There's all kinds of things we desire. There's all kinds of things we live for. And friends, God is here to expose Himself to us so that we might say, He's the only one I want. He's the only one worth living for. He is the only one that is satisfying. He's not just revealed His grace. Is He a gracious God? Oh, yes. A thousand times yes. But He is a gracious God so that we might come into fellowship with Him. He gives us grace so that we get Him and are drawn to fellowship with Him. The grace of God, excuse me, the God of grace is also seen in man's rebellion. Now sin is never good news, is it? It never seems to me to be good news um, especially after I engage in it. And so sin is, sin is never good news. I mean, it just seems like, it seems at a time like it's just a little thing. And a, a little gluttony with popcorn after I've been gone for two weeks is okay until an hour after the consumption of the popcorn. And then it's not good news anymore. And a snarky word, untimely spoken, seems to be wise at the moment, but as soon as the words are off the lips, it just doesn't seem to be a good thing, does it? Sin never seems to be good. Everywhere I go, whenever I teach on biblical counseling, and whether, wherever I unfold, this is what the Word of God can do in your life. Inevitably, whether it's in Granbury or the Ukraine or Israel or anywhere else, no matter where I am, inevitably somebody comes and says, let me tell you a story and can you fix it? And just about the time I say, well, here's an answer for you, they unfold some other part of the story that complicates it still more. And um, one of the gals in that picture that you saw, she unfolded for us that first evening. She says, what do you, how do you handle injustice? Well, that's a big question. What do you mean? And so we started asking questions. And, and then she unfolded to us some things that are going on at home. And then we were just about to give an answer, and she says, oh, it might help you to know that my son is autistic. Oh, well, there's a complicating factor. 
And how, how do you minister to someone who's not only suffering in a difficult relationship, but just suffering from creation? It's complex. Sin never seems like a good news, does it? Sin never seems like good news. When you read what you read in chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. God's wrath, it will be poured out against every aspect of unrighteousness and against every unrighteous person. And and we even see that in verses 24 and 26 and 28 of that chapter where, where God's wrath is already being poured out in this world against unrighteousness. Sin never seems like good news. In fact, Leon Morris, the theologian, has said, if God intends us, now if God intends us to do good works, it follows that He is not indifferent to the way we live. One day He will call on us to give account of ourselves. There is justice coming. God, God is concerned about our lives. And yet, my friends, there is still great grace from God in the midst of our sin and sin. God's truth is not suppressed. Men attempt, 118, to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, but God's truth is not suppressed. It will be validated. It will come to fruition. Verse 20, not only is God's truth not suppressed, but notice verse 20, since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen. He's... He's revealed Himself in creation. And not only has He revealed Himself so that He is seen, but notice the next phrase, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse, so that all men everywhere understand the Creator who is God. They understand the supremacy of God. They understand God. And not only do they see that around them, but chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it is inside of them. They show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So not only, not only has God been gracious to sinners to reveal himself in creation, he's been gracious to reveal himself to them in their minds and in their hearts. And he does this with great patience. He will Eventually, judge all men. He will, verse 6 of chapter 2, render to each person according to his deeds. He will judge. But he doesn't judge immediately. I won't ask for a show of hands. But who sinned this morning already? Okay, well, okay, there there are two. (laughs) Looper children. They're honest, though. They're honest sinners. You've got to love that, right? Yeah. We sinned this morning, didn't we? Probably. Something we did. Something we said. Some attitude. Some desire. Some longing. Something in which we didn't give God the fullness that His glory deserves. And yet you're all here. God didn't... God didn't condemn. God is patient. Why? Verse 4, chapter 2. Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Bet. He's patient. He's waiting for you to repent. Now what does that repentance do? Well, the repentance 
leads us to confess our sin and experience the grace of God's forgiveness of that sin? Is that the end? No, no, no. The end of repentance is to get us to God. The end of repentance is to restore the fellowship. So He is patient with us. He is kind towards us so that we are drawn to Him in fellowship and in relationship. There's another way that we see the God of grace in this book, and it is in Christ's salvation. I love the book of Romans. Jesus had His 12 disciples, and He loved all of them. Similarly, I have loved every book that I have preached. There's never been a book that I've said, well, I don't like that one. Um, I loved them all. At the time, inevitably, I would have said, this is my favorite book. But of Jesus' 12 disciples, he had three, Peter, James, and John. And of all the books that I've preached, I have three that have resonated particularly in my heart. Ephesians, 1 John, and Romans. And of the three, Jesus had John as the beloved disciple. And I have Romans as my beloved book. It's really pretty simple. It's because I have wept over this book and the kindness of God's grace like I have wept over no other book that I've preached. It's happened publicly again and it happens in my office, I'll say every week. This book has just transfixed my heart with the amazing nature of God's grace. But it's not just God's grace. It is the grace of God by which He is revealed to us. Notice verse 21 of chapter 3. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, exposed. It's witnessed by the law and the prophets testified to by the law and the prophets, spoken of by the law and the prophets. And it is done so that we see the glory of God in the person of Christ. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly. to demonstrate His righteousness. He's exposing Himself. Everything about our salvation is designed to draw us to Him. Notice verse 28. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And he emphasizes there a man, any man. And verse 29, building on that idea, he says, Or is God a God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. He is, he is a God of Jews and he is a God of Gentiles. And when he says God, 
He means us to understand that we are drawn to Him. It's not just that He is a distant God, like like a boss who sits in an office and never interacts with his employees. No, He is a God in heaven who sent His Son so that we might be redeemed, so that we could go to Him to be with Him. Remember Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17? He prays that, that we would be one with them even as they in the Trinity are one. He wants that fellowship with us that only to this point has been experienced in the Trinity. It's not just that God is showing His salvation. Oh, He is. But it is a salvation that is exposed so that we come to Him. The God of grace is seen. It's seen in man's rebellion. It's seen in Christ's salvation. It is seen in the Spirit's sanctification. Not only have we been saved from our sin, we have been saved to righteousness. And, and this is emphasized by our unity with Christ. We're, we are connected to Him. Uh, chapter 6, verse 3, we have been baptized into His death. Uh, verse 4, we have been baptized into His death so that we might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, that we become united with Him in the likeness of His death. Certainly then we will also be in the likeness of His resurrection. We are, we are connected to Him. We are unified with Him. We are related to Him. We are bonded to Him. We are, we are so much connected to Christ. The scriptures repeatedly say we are in Him. Not just beside Him. Not just with Him. Not just around Him. But in Him. We are one with Him. And is it any wonder then that the picture of marriage is used to demonstrate our unity? We're one, united with and in. And this work is all done by the Spirit of God. He has set us free from sin and death. That's 8-2. All of chapter 8 is about the Spirit of God and what God has done through the Spirit to redeem us, to sanctify us, to continue to set us apart. He set us free from a life lived by sin and for the flesh. That's verses 4 and following. Um, he give us, gives us the hope of eternal redemption. That's verse 23. He intercedes for us and prays for us in our weaknesses. That's verses 26 and 27. He keeps us in the love of God and keeps us from being separated from God. That's verses 38 and 39. But at the heart and the center of this chapter is the reality that He connects us to God as God's sons. For those who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So, so that we have received, verse 15, the spirit of adoption. So we cry out, Abba, Father. And the spirit, verse 16, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. We, we're not just employees. We're not just slaves. And, and, and we are. We are God's slaves. But friends, we are so much more than that. We are, we are His children. And He puts Himself on display so that we are drawn to Him and we come to Him as His children. We come to Him. The grace of God is seen in the Spirit's sanctification. The grace of God is seen in God's sovereignty. 
God's sovereignty simply means that God is authoritative. He is king and I am not. His word, His promises never fail. That's chapter 9, verse 6. When Israel and mankind rejects Him, He still sovereignly, graciously saves some uh, to salvation. That's verses 10 and 11. His will, especially in salvation, supremely in salvation, cannot be thwarted. That's verses 15 and following. He sovereignly enfolds Gentiles into His plan of salvation. That's verses 23 and 24. And in sovereign grace, watch this, chapter 10, in sovereign grace, He enables sinners to call on Him. There's no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, this isn't just... This isn't just getting on WhatsApp when you're in Ukraine and calling your wife in Granbury and it sounds like she's next door. This isn't, this isn't just going to your neighbor's house and ringing the doorbell and him coming to the door and you having a conversation. This is the infinite God of the universe who is wholly separate from us, completely distinct from us. There is morally no, compre- no, no, no correspondence between us and Him. The, the chasm is not just vast, it's infinite. And He says, we call on Him. You can call on Him. You can come to Him. You can ask Him. You can seek Him. And He will embrace you and welcome you and bring you into fellowship. Remember what Paul says at the end of verse, end of chapter 20, or excuse me, end of chapter 10, verse 20. Isaiah is very bold and says, I, speaking for God, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest, revealed to those who did not ask for me. I revealed myself. I exposed myself and they came to me and I embraced them and welcomed them. And then verse 21, As for Israel, he says, All the day long have I stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. I've I've made myself available. It's an amazing God. You think about the world that we live in. And the more well-known a person becomes, the more isolated they become. The, the, more, the more prominent a person is, the more difficult it is to get to that person. That's true of politicians. It's, it's true in the entertainment industry. It's true of athletes. It's, it's true of bosses and business owners, friends. It's even true in families, isn't it? When one family member becomes more prominent. Kids have to fight time to see dad or mom, don't they? It's true everywhere in the world except one place with God. It's not true of God. 
God is infinitely prominent. God is infinitely magnificent. He is infinitely glorious. He is transcendent. He is beyond us in every way and He comes to us. And He reveals Himself so that we might come to Him and be with Him. The question today simply is, do you know Him? Do you worship Him? Do you embrace Him? Is He satisfying to you? Our Father, we thank You for this really brief reminder, way too brief reminder of some of these great truths that have been revealed about You in this book. Would You give us joy in them? And not just joy in the truths, but would You give us joy in You? and be satisfied by you in these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.